the Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Welcome back to the Young and Healthy Podcast. My name is Kate Sutter, and I am your host for today. When we are going to be talking about food allergies in kids, and I have three esteemed guests from our division of allergy and immunology who are joining me today for this conversation. Um, And we're gonna do kind of something a little bit different with the format today. And we're first going to have a conversation with Krista Mills, who is the food allergy care coordinator. Um, She works directly with families of kiddos who have food allergies. And we're gonna start with a mini conversation with her Um, kind of about the holidays and some cool things that um, we know of and some organizations who are working to make holidays inclusive. Um, Krista, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And our other guests um, who we will speak with shortly are Dr. Amal Asad, who is the director of the food allergy program here at Cincinnati Children's. So excited to have you, Dr. Assad. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. And Dr. Justin Schwartz is also here, and he is a pediatric allergist. Um, and we're going to be talking to Dr. Schwartz about um, oral immunotherapy in a little bit. Thanks for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. So let's um, let's start with you, Krista. And I mentioned the holidays, and. It is. It will be October 14th when we publish this, so we're coming up on Halloween. And I know that this is one of the holidays that is just so tough for kids who have food allergies and have to be so careful with, um, with foods that they come in contact with. So there's a really cool campaign called the Teal Pumpkin Campaign, and I would love for you to tell us what it is and um, why it's so important at Halloween. The Teal Pumpkin Campaign is um, brought to um, us by FAIR, Food Allergy Research and Education Organization, and it is a fun opportunity that helps um, make trick-or-treat inclusive for the 1 in 13 children who do have food allergies. Um, There are several resources on the FAIR website. You can print off Teal Pumpkin posters. Um, Also, um, you can purchase Teal Pumpkins now in stores, and you can paint Teal Pumpkins, paint your pumpkin teal, which is fun. Um, And you can place those outside of your home. Um, The FAIR website also has on their on their website, they have information about where you can locate homes in your neighborhood that have the teal pumpkin opportunity for children with food allergies. So this is really cool, and we've actually um, talked about teal pumpkin for several years, and so my family participates every year. And um, so I I have a painted teal pumpkin that we set out, and it indicates that that house has non-food options. Is that right? Am I getting that right? That we have, you know, stickers or um, a Play-Doh that um, are, that we're handing out for trick-or-treat instead of candy. Yes. And, and you can place the pumpkin out. And then one of the things that I do is I separate out the candy in one bowl and the toys and trinkets in another. 
the toys and trinkets I typically buy those in the party favor aisle because you can get several of the same thing that makes it fun for kids mm -hmm. but also that avoids the cross-contamination and so that provides the opportunity for the for the toys to be safe um, for the children and then it also um, you know gives me an opportunity to to interact with children um, who have food allergies and they're pleasantly surprised when they see that I have you know these toys so and so as far as participation goes you mentioned the website and how does that work do you go and like input your own address so that it pops up on the map they provide you an opportunity on the website that you can put in your address and then it almost creates kind of like Google puts the little bubble or balloon over mm -hmm. it and indicates it in that way so what are some ideas for non-food? Play-Doh. I always go to Play-Doh. I love those teeny tiny little things of Play-Doh for some reason. Um, but I know that um, there are so many other ideas as well. What are, You said that you you do it. What do you usually go to? Um, I usually provide them with pencils or yo-yos uh, or stickers, um, the, the, the glow lights. Children really like that, and it provides them the opportunity to wear it while they're trick-or-treating, and they can be recognized in the dark. So that's um, one of the fun things that I've found that works. A little extra safety there, too. Yeah. I love the glow, glow sticks or the necklaces, or that's an awesome one. I love that one. Um, so what are some other like allergy-safe things that we should be thinking about related to trick-or-treating? So it, when you're trick-or-treating, um, you want to have a no-eat rule while you're trick-or-treating, like no grabbing things out of your bag while you're trick-or-treating. Um, as a parent, if your child has food allergies, you can provide small trinkets once you get home if you have to remove a candy or something that they are allergic to so they don't feel like they've had something removed. You can replace it with something equally as fun. Um, you can also... Um, remember to have them read the labels every time. Um, fun size candies can often have different ingredients than full size, so you can't make the assumption that it's the same snicker that you're seeing in a fun size as you are in a regular size. And then also one of the ideas is you can have your neighbors, if you live in a tight neighborhood where you know your neighbors very well, you can give treat bags to them and they can give those to your child as you're going door to door. So then you know you're receiving something that is allergy friendly. Also, um, the FAIR website mentioned that you could host a, a party instead in lieu of trick-or-treating. Things like that are opportunities. But if I have to say the most important thing is just reading the label every time. And what about families who, we had mentioned kind of the holidays in general, and I feel like Halloween is like the kickoff to the fall and winter holidays. Um, how can we kind of plant a seed of understanding and being thoughtful for people who may be hosting get-togethers for any one of the upcoming holidays um, where there might be kids or even adults who have um, who have food allergies and what tips would you have for them for both hosting as well as being inclusive in any way we can so the tips for hosting would be when you're putting out the invitation maybe opening that door of communication like hey I'm gonna host this party and I'm gonna be serving things is there any foods that we should be considerate of that you or your child might be allergic to 
Um, also, you know, inform them of the menu ahead of time. Like, this is what we're planning to serve. Offer them the opportunity to bring a dish that they feel is safe. Um, saying that up front so they don't have to ask you if it's okay to bring that dish. But maybe say if you feel, you know, like you would like to bring something that you know is allergy safe for your child, feel free to do that. And then also making sure that when you're preparing your foods that you're watching for cross-contamination. So pots, spoons, things like that, surfaces, that you're washing them with hot soapy water. Also washing your hands with soapy water so you're not cross-contaminating using utensils for separate food items so that you're not cross-contaminating foods in that way. Having food allergy, um, foods that have allergy, allergic ingredients on a surface area that's not reachable by small children. So the small child can't reach up and grab that cookie or something that they might be allergic to. And um, keeping, you know, just the, making sure that you're using maybe disposable utensils, things like that. If you are the guest coming to the party, I think it would be really important to be upfront with the, the party host of your allergies, asking them to keep their ingredient labels. That way, in case there is a reaction, you know what was in that product. And then also, you know, reminding your child, right? Like, mm -hmm. don't eat anything unless you've checked with me or an adult that knows what your food allergies are. Um, and just letting them be aware. like. To, to, to make sure that something's safe before they just start to eat it. Those are such good reminders. And I, as I was listening to you um, share all of that with us, I was struck by, it, if I'm putting myself in the shoes of a family who's coming, they probably feel really nicely cared for, that somebody was thoughtful enough and took the time to ask and truly listen. Um, and I think that that's kind of a hard conversation to have sometimes if, you know, well, I always make this on Halloween. Um, but some families might be faced with not coming if they don't know that it's a safe environment. Um, are there any other thoughts that you have just on what hosts or family members can do to make sure that kids truly feel welcome, even if they bring their own food with them, which might be, um, which might offend somebody if they didn't know what the situation was. Um, so I did have a question in there, which was, do you have any other additional just kind of, these are things that we can do to really help families know that we care? Um. I can share from my own personal experience. I was an emergency room nurse for years and really was not aware until I came to work in allergy of considering those things when I'm hosting a party. So just being um, considerate that other people might face challenges that we don't face um, in our own lives and being considerate of that, uh, it definitely has helped me to open up that line of communication now when people come to visit. I will say, is there any allergies I need to be aware of? Which I may not have had that conversation years ago because of my lack of knowledge. That's a great one. Just asking the question sounds like the perfect first step in almost any situation. It's just, is there anything we need to be aware of? I'm feeling so much more prepared for, um, for including everyone who we could potentially see during the holidays. Do you have any final thoughts before we finish up our 
our first mini conversation here about um, the holidays and kids feeling included? I would just say go teal because it really brings a smile to the kids' faces when they come to your home and they see you have other options. That's amazing. I love it. So we are going to shift now um, to Dr. Assad. You're in the hot seat, Dr. Assad. Um, and we're actually going to back up a little bit because I wanted to make sure that we started with those extremely practical tips that Krista brought to this conversation. But I do want to back up just a little bit and talk kind of more about food allergies in general. And maybe we can start, uh, Dr. Assad, with what are the most common food allergens? And if we're a family who's having people over for the holidays, what do they need to be thinking about and understanding there could be reactions to? Yeah, this is a great question. Of course, any food can cause an allergic reaction. And uh, the fact that we have these lists of common food allergens doesn't mean that somebody cannot be allergic to any food outside those lists. But those lists were made based on uh, plenty of observation that these are the foods that commonly cause food allergies or reactions, allergic reactions in, in children or adults. And also have been, the foods themselves have some characteristics that make them, uh, even though extremely nutritious foods, but it also makes them likely to be an allergen. Um, and these uh, include cow milk, eggs, peanuts, uh, all kinds of tree nuts, mm -hmm. uh, even though there is just a, a more limited list of tree nuts that are commonly consumed in the United States and commonly cause reactions, which include cashews and pistachios, uh, walnuts and pecans, hazelnuts, uh, a bit less likely almonds. Uh, these are the three nuts. And then uh, sesame has been more recently added to the list, even though in the past it wasn't known to be a common food allergen, uh, but it's been noted to, to cause allergic reactions, uh, mostly in children. Uh, there are uh, a few additional that I'm gonna say, I personally don't think they are very common which includes soy uh, and wheat. And also in children in particular, it's not very common to find fish allergy or uh, shellfish or shrimp or lobster or... or um, uh, crab? Crab, crab, yes. <laughs> crab allergy. Uh, but I have to say this with the... To also say that we have recently uh, described uh, food allergies in different races, races or racial populations mm -hmm. and found that they are different. So we have found that, for example, uh, children who are of African-American race uh, have more fish and shellfish allergy than children who are uh, Caucasians. We have also found that uh, children who are of Hispanic origin uh, may have more milk allergy and more wheat allergy than white populations. So 
uh, taking that into consideration is also important in uh, defining the more common food allergens. And of course, age is different too. Uh, so you can get uh, food allergy. Usually, food allergies start in the in the childhood ages, but sometimes some of them start later in life, uh, which include the tree nuts, sometimes the 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 shellfish as well. So you mentioning that in different populations of people, sometimes the allergies are different. And I'm curious if allergy is hereditary, if it's something that is often passed from parent to child. Yeah, that's a great question too. So we know there is a hereditary component in being allergic, and that's what we call atopic. That's the hereditary component. But food allergies are not passed down from mother to child or from father to child exactly the same. So if the mother has a peanut allergy, it doesn't mean the child will have a peanut allergy. They might have this tendency to be an allergic child, uh, which the allergic diseases also include asthma, eczema, aller nasal allergies, and food allergy. So it's this tendency to be allergic that's mostly inherited rather than the food allergy itself. And those, aller those allergic disorders come in a package deal sometimes, and sometimes the package skips one of them. So you might have you know, an allergic parent, but then the child may have just the eczema or may have just the nasal allergies, but not have the food allergies or the other way out. Siblings yeah. also are, um, are always a question. And again, because these allergic tendencies come in a package deal, sometimes the package gets handed to one child and the other child just doesn't get it and then the third child may get part of it. Really interesting. So when there is one child who is diagnosed with food allergies, do we pay closer attention to any siblings who are born after that child? Is there anything special that parents need to be looking for? Uh, I usually tell my parents uh, this. If the next child is born, and is diagnosed early on with eczema, let me see them. But if they're born and they have this baby soft skin and there's no eczema there, just don't worry. I like it, that's good <laughs> guidance. Yeah. So let's talk about symptoms of a food allergy reaction because I, I think that most people probably have kind of what they typically think of as an allergic reaction, but I'd I'd love to understand what that kind of spectrum looks like. Yeah, that's a very good question too, and it's really important that uh, patients and people hear this. So, and we get this information from direct observation, and we do a procedure called the food challenge in clinic where, yes, we bring the patient who is so thought to have an allergy to a certain food, and actually feed them the food right in front of our eyes and right in front of our eyes see what happens. Of course, it's very monitored, it's, very, um, it's a very safe thing to do. Um, and from observations of many, many, many thousands of these food challenges, uh, it's been noted that, number one, patients don't react at a very, very small amount. 
So commonly reactions happen after the patients have had a few bites of, of that food or a few servings of that food, but not the tiny, tiny, tiny amounts. Uh, second is the most common thing that first happens is these rashes, skin rashes. So what we call cutaneous reactions. So whether they bake out in hives, the, they have blotchy wet rash on their face, sometimes the eyes swell a bit, all of these are considered skin reactions. These are by far the most common. Um, the next common is stomach aches and feeling nauseated or throwing up. That's, that's another common reaction. Uh, less common is uh, respiratory symptoms where they, they can't breathe or extremely, extremely much less common is the heart and cardiovascular system symptoms like fainting or losing the blood pressure, uh, very, very uncommon. Um, the other thing to note is, again, they don't all come at the same time and they don't always have to exist at the same time. And each patient uh, has almost like this is the set of symptoms that happen. So they, they might always get a rash or they might get a rash on the stomach ache, but they could also get a stomach ache without a rash. So we, you can get some of these symptoms, not all together, but Again, as regards what's more common, as I mentioned, the skin rashes are the much more common, which tend to be a very good warning sign uh, for the parents as well as for the children as well. Um, and then, you know, the stomach aches and all of that, which sometimes are difficult to discern as well. <laughs> There's a word that people often associate with an allergic reaction being anaphylaxis. And I'm not sure I fully understand it. Can you explain to us what anaphylaxis is, please? Yeah, sure. So the word anaphylaxis is technically, uh, it means against phylaxis, which phylaxis means tolerance. So anaphylaxis means you don't have tolerance uh, to this particular allergen. Uh, but as it's been used, it it's been used really to mostly uh, mean a, a spectrum of severity of the allergic response. Um, so this, the allergic response we just mentioned as regards symptoms also has a spectrum of severity. So some patients may have just a few hives on their face, some get covered, the whole body gets covered. So that becomes a bit, even though it's still skin reactions, it's, it's, it's more severe. Some patients, uh, start sneezing a few times and the nose runs, which is could be mild. Some may just have a runny nose and a lot of secretions in the upper airways to, to where they feel that they can't breathe. That may be a bit more severe. So anaphylaxis in general is commonly used now to indicate that uh, this was a severe reaction. Um, to some, it also means that this was a life-threatening reaction. Uh, but as I just mentioned, most food allergy reactions are not life-threatening. Uh, we would love to keep that term just to mean life-threatening reactions, uh, but as it's come to be used, it, it doesn't always mean that. Um, also, uh, there's some explanations of this term depending on who's, who's defining it. 
and uh, some organizations have defined it as if you have two systems, two body systems involved, then we're going to call that anaphylaxis. Uh, those two body systems could be if you have a rash and a stomachache, mm -hmm. then you have your gastrointestinal system and your cutaneous system, then we're going to call this anaphylaxis, even though none of these are life-threatening. So historically, when somebody says an anaphylactic reaction, that's the life-threatening reaction. And if somebody says they haven't, I, it's hard with it having multiple meanings to different <laughs> people, and you never quite know who you're yes. talking to. Yes. Um, but this has been super helpful to understand um, what it is by definition. Um, but if somebody shares with you, you know, my child is allergic to whatever the allergen may be, and it causes an anaphylactic reaction, we should consider that to be a serious thing that they've just shared with us. Well, sure. Yeah. Well, as a physician, when they tell me this, I ask a lot more probing questions, like what exactly happened, mm -hmm. and uh, how serious was it, and how did it is how did it progress, how did it respond to treatment, and so on. Uh, as if I don't have my physician hat on, and somebody just tells me my child has food allergy and it causes anaphylaxis. Of course, I have extreme respect for that, and I usually don't ask any more questions and just take it that they mean that the child has a severe allergic reaction that maybe has landed them in an emergency room or has needed for them to be treated with epinephrine injectable or admitted to the hospital. So, yeah. So you mentioned treatment and a few of those things. Um, do you have just some general guidelines? If there is a family whose child is experiencing an allergic reaction for the first time, or perhaps um, you know they've accidentally eaten something to which they're reacting, what should they do next? What should they be thinking about? Yeah, that's a great question, and you specifically asked for the first time. <laughs> so Yes, for the first time. Let's focus on the first time. Yeah. So the common first time that we see is, you know, as we've told parents, you need to introduce all these foods in the child's diet early. Then, you know, parents are listening and are introducing peanut, some kind of peanut protein uh, in, the, in the diet, or maybe giving them uh, part of an egg in the diet. Uh, or, you know, a child who has been breastfed and now they're just giving them formula, cow milk-based formula, or, or milk, or cow milk, and then that child has a reaction. Mm -hmm. I have to say that, number one, most infants' reactions, are uh, that first reaction is commonly mild. It doesn't mean that it can't be severe, but usually they just have a rash. I mean, babies also have this tendency to just spit out what is, is not good for them. So usually the babies would spit this out and, and then have a skin rash. Of course, most parents, we do tell them, you know, call your primary doctor and get medical, medical advice as to what's happening. Now, if the child or the, the baby then starts sneezing, they feel like they, they throw up, they, all this becomes more like an anaphylactic reaction, and definitely they should call 911. 
uh, and that is always preferred there over that the parents put the child in the car and drive them to the emergency room. Now we hope that uh, the EMS carry epinephrine because epinephrine is the treatment of choice for severe allergic reactions. Um, and then it should be used without hesitation. It doesn't have side effects. And again, you know, having done all these food challenges in my life and having treated some of them with epinephrine, it's always amazing how epinephrine works. It works immediately. It relieves that allergic reaction and it's like night and day. So this is why, you know, the primary uh, treatment of food allergies that we hope all parents, you know, have and carry with them and send it to the schools and all the caretakers is injectable epinephrine. I think the final question that I have prepared for us for this part of our conversation is about whether or not children can outgrow allergies mm. that they have when they're young. Is that a possibility? Yes, yes, it is a possibility actually for, for many of the foods. Uh, so uh, very commonly we see cow milk allergy being outgrown. Uh, but I have to say also in that regard that if a child has a cow milk allergy, uh, there's commonly a thought that, hey, by one year of age, they won't have it anymore. It, it's not advisable that they just, since the child turns one, to just give them the cow milk at home when they want because that's the common knowledge. It is not. So if a child totally has a cow milk allergy, then... They have to be evaluated by an allergist to, to determine if they have outgone that allergy or not and how to administer this food, uh, if it is safe to do it, uh, through tests and through the challenges and all of that. So eggs also tend to be outgone. Egg allergy tends to be outgone. The year or the age when these get outgone is not, uh, is not one year of age or two years of age. It really varies from one patient to another. Uh, and can can extend up to five years of age, but a lot of these do get outgrown. Even peanut allergy, in 20% of patients who have peanut allergy, it does get outgrown over the years. And I'm going to shift our conversation now to Dr. Schwartz. Sure. Um, so the this idea of patients naturally outgrowing an allergy and no longer having it, um, is fantastic for the percentage that it works, um, th who have that experience. What we're going to talk about is oral immunotherapy, which is kind of a medical treatment that helps the patient outgrow the allergy. Is that an okay way to put that? Or do how do we think about what OIT is generally? Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, so you know, oral immunotherapy is a relatively new therapy um, that is being um, offered um, as a, a treatment option for food allergy. Um, it's essentially um, a treatment approach where we take food allergic patients, um, we gradually expose them to their um, food allergen in increasing amounts over time. Um, and what this uh, does is it induces kind of a clinical state um, where the patient is less reactive to their food allergen. And um, we call this, um, on the medical side, desensitization. So, um, so over time, um, these patients really get to a point 
um, where they can tolerate exposure levels of their allergen um, that they would be encountering for most accidental exposures. Um, and this allows us to, to mitigate some of those risks for um, those accidental exposures and having an allergic reaction. And in some cases, we can get to a point where um, they desensitize high enough to where um, they can actually start incorporating some of this food um, into their diet. And so um, this kind of protection against accidental exposures, um, the ability for some patients to um, have less kind of restricted diets, um, this has really been associated with um, improvements in, in uh, patient quality of life and lower uh, food allergy kind of related anxiety. How do you determine a patient who is a good candidate for OIT? So there's a number of factors. Um, so first of all, um, we need to have a pretty good um, uh, sense that they actually truly do have a food allergy. Um, and so that's either um, their, their testing suggests there's a high likelihood um, or um, they actually have a clinical reaction history. Um, and so um, this is also a therapy that's um, relatively time um, intensive, so um, requires patients to have um, the time to get into clinic to see us on a, um, um, every you know, couple times a month um, over a period of you know, six to nine months. And, um, and so it's, it's something that, that requires uh, parents and, and patients to be able to available to be able to do that. Um, and then um, there's a daily dosing requirement and some lifestyle restrictions that come along with that too. So parents have to be kind of aware of these, um, some of these restrictions to the therapy and be willing to kind of um, abide by those. Is there a typical amount of time that the treatment takes or is that variable from patient to patient? So it's, um, it is variable from patient to patient. Um, so, you know, with this therapy, we start off with really small amounts of the, the food that they're allergic to. Um, these patients take this um, dose on a daily basis, um, and this kind of induces this um, change in their immune system to allow um, their immune system to get um, kind of used to their food allergen. Um, and then every two to four weeks, they're coming back um, to see us in clinic um, for what we call a dose escalation. Um, and this is where their dose, their daily dose is increased. And so for most patients, you know, this process takes about six to nine months um, for us to get to kind of this point where they're allergic to the point where they're kind of desensitized and on um, a dose that we call their maintenance dose. Um, and so when patients get to this, this point, um, they take this, this daily maintenance dose as long as they want to kind of maintain this um, sense of, um, of desensitization where they're non-reactive. And so I always tell families, you know, food allergy is a chronic disease. Um, and like other chronic diseases, um, it requires regular treatment. And so um, they need to stay on this therapy as long as they want to kind of um, keep their disease in remission. And so um, if this therapy is, is eventually stopped, um, the majority of patients will unfortunately kind of revert back and their sensitivity to their food allergen oftentimes returns. Um, but there is a small subset of patients um, where their food allergy does appear to permanently resolve. But unfortunately at this point, we really don't have um, a good way to really quantify how, how many patients actually um, get to that point or really predict who those patients might be. At what age does it usually 
make sense for a child to start this? Yeah, so this is a, a really good question. So, um, you know, so we offer um, OIT um, to infants eight to nine months of age, all the way up to um, adolescents, 17 to 18 years of age. Um, there is some emerging evidence that the um, earlier you start OIT, um, the better the long-term outcomes of the therapy are. And so um, our internal data here at Cincinnati Children's, this is um, kind of supports this. Um, and we've seen that you know, preschoolers tend to have less sy symptoms on the therapy. They can tolerate um, dose es escalations that are higher than um, we, we oftentimes see with um, some of the older kids and adolescent um, age populations. Um, but regardless of age, we can desensitize these patients and um, uh, there's, you know, we, we offer this therapy for most um, age groups. So I can imagine it probably sounds a little bit scary for parents and for kids, especially the ones who are maybe older, who have been avoiding whatever the allergen may be for a really long time. If somebody is thinking, man, that sounds really interesting, but that's scary. What advice would you have for them? So I think this is a, one of the huge advantages of OIT actually is, um, is helping um, patients kind of learn how to, to manage some of that food um, related anxiety. So um, I would say the vast majority of our patients um, that are older um, come into OIT with a fear or anxiety of their food allergen. Um, and, um, you know, we reassure uh, patients and families, you know, this, this process is safe. Our goal is not for them to have allergic reactions um, as they're moving through this process. We, again, start with extremely small amounts that are generally way below the reaction threshold for the vast majority of, of um, food allergic patients. And so, um, you know, this is a process where, you know, we can, you know, get them through to where they're actually, you know, exposing themselves to um, amounts of, of the food that um, starts to, to get them to the point where they're feeling more comfortable um, being around this in their environment, um, being even exposed to it um, in some of the foods that they eat. Are there particular allergens that work well with OIT or can you do any? Yeah, that's a, another great question. So, um, you know, we've been performing um, OIT at our institution um, since 2014 um, as part of clinical trials and, and um, have, uh, you know, started our clinical OIT program in 2018. Um, so we um, have over 690 patients um, in our OIT program. We've offered um, OIT to a number of different foods, our most common foods that we um, complete OIT on our peanut, egg, and tree nuts, um, but we do have other providers that, um, that will do um, oral desensitization to other foods as well. And if somebody is like, yes, this sounds amazing, what are kind of the next steps if somebody wanted to inquire about starting OIT for their child, either here at Cincinnati Children's or if we're reaching somebody who's not in our community, what steps could they take? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So, you know, to be scheduled for OIT, um, if the patients are being followed by an allergist um, here at Cincinnati Children's, um, they really just need to discuss the options um, for pursuing OIT with their clinical provider. Um, if the patients haven't been seen by an allergist um, here at Children's, 
we recommend that they first establish um, uh, care with one of our allergists um, who can then determine if this therapy would be a good option for them. Um, and then they could subsequently place a referral for our OIT program. And is this a treatment that is offered in other areas of the country too? If we're finding somebody who's far away and they're like, I can't get to Cincinnati, can they? Can we just generally say it's it's a good idea to talk to your allergist and ask if it's an option for you? Yep, that would be my recommendation. So certainly, um, you know, we're one of the larger programs um, within you know the academic centers um, in the area. But certainly, um, this is a therapy that um, is increasingly offered by different um, allergists, both on the in the private setting and academic setting. So they should just talk to their allergists and see um, what options are available in their area. So bringing this full circle right back where we started with the holidays, um, and it's so fantastic to hear that there is a treatment option that could potentially make those holidays less stressful for, for families and for kids who have food allergies. Um, I'm going to wrap up our conversation here. Dr. Assad, I didn't give you the opportunity to share any final thoughts with us. Do you have anything else you'd like to add to this conversation before we finish up? But this has been a great conversation, and I uh, hope that uh, it answers questions in everybody's mind. But what I want to share is don't sit there alone and be afraid of food allergies. Please see someone who can help you. There is a lot of help for patients with food allergies, whether it's a new food allergy or a long-standing food allergy. We have learned so much more about food allergies, and there's so much happening in the area of food allergy and in the field. Uh, a lot of different treatments coming down the pike, a lot more experience and knowledge. Uh, so please do that. The other thing I would say is also it always takes research um, and, and clinical trials and other um, scientific opportunities so if you are so inclined uh, please ask us and we can maybe have you participate in some of the research that's happening that might help you and your child and might help others and advance the knowledge and the field that's such an important message thank you for that dr assad and dr schwartz any final thoughts before we close out I just want to wish everybody a, a safe and, and happy Halloween and um, uh, enjoy yourself and, um, and uh, uh, have a, a safe and fun night. Fantastic. Thank you. And everybody get your non-food treats and your teal pumpkins and sign up to let kids know that you're there and willing to um, and ready to welcome them. Thank you. I'm so grateful to our three guests, grateful to all of you. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. You've been listening to the Young and Healthy Podcast. We'll see you next time. This episode of Young and Healthy was recorded on October 13th, 2022. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Our theme music was created by Stephen Greco, and this episode was produced by Symphony Fair Harris. Thanks for listening. Follow Cincinnati Children's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.